Welcome back. Part four in our study of the Gospel of Luke, and we are in the infancy narrative. <laughs> Isn't that exciting? Jesus has just been born. We've looked at Luke chapter two, and we've seen that we want to understand what Luke wants to tell us about the birth of Jesus, not what our traditional movies and TV shows have told us. And this is a birth into community. This is a birth into a Jewish society that is nurturing and embracing. Why would we say that? Well, think about it. If we look at Luke chapter 2, following the birth and following the visit by the shepherds at that uh, epic moment, after eight days had passed, it was time to circumcise the child. Again, Jesus is going to be a Jewish baby who fulfills the covenant with Moses and is circumcised on the eighth day, a berit milah. And he was called Jesus. They circumcised him, and then his name was announced, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice. This is Jesus, son of David, son of Mary, who is now fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant, fulfilling the law of Moses. They're paying the redemption price of the firstborn. Everything is in fulfillment of scripture. We remember that Zechariah and Elizabeth, these pious, faithful Jews have been visited by the Lord and seen the fulfillment of his promises. Mary and Joseph, likewise pious, faithful Jews are experiencing God's fulfillment of his promises. And now we come to the temple and there is Simeon. You remember Simeon, he's a very old man. He is at the temple, he is righteous and devout. He is waiting upon God, looking for the fulfillment of his promises. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came to the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do what was customary under the law, Simeon took his arms and praised God, took him into his arms and praised God saying, now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Simeon is prophetic. Simeon has the Holy Spirit upon him. He embraces that child. The Holy Spirit confirms to him that this is the Messiah, but look at his his prophecy, look at his oracle. He knows that Jesus is going to be the vehicle of salvation. But this salvation is not simply for Israel. This salvation is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Already, the, the trajectory of Luke is set. Jesus' destiny is for all humanity. The benefit of his death and resurrection is for all humanity Gentiles and Jews alike, from before Jesus was even able to think about these things himself. The child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said. And then Simeon blessed them and turned to Mary and said, This child is destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel, and a sign 
that will be opposed, so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. So, two things that Luke prepares us as readers for, from the prophecy of Simeon, from this infancy narrative, is that universality of salvation, but also that conflict awaits, that suffering awaits. He will be destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel. That lets us know that there will be opposition from within the Jewish community itself to the claims of Jesus. And it, it, there will be violence because it is as though a sword will pierce Mary's heart. So the violence done to her son, which will happen in the future, is something that will impact her as though she herself was the one suffering. So he's prepared the reader that it's not an easy road ahead. This may be great news that this Jesus, this baby, is destined for, to bring salvation, but it's going to be problematic, violent, and traumatic. Now, we had mentioned one of, in one of our introductory um, sessions about how Luke is the egalitarian gospel, that he includes women in um, so many passages where we might not, might not see them. So we've seen these partnerships. He likes men and women, men and women. We've had Zechariah and Elizabeth, each had a role to play. Joseph and Mary, each have a role to play. Here we have Simeon the prophet, and then we have this appearance by Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel. Both Simeon and Anna are prophets, according to Luke. Of great age, she never left the temple, and she came at that moment and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. So there is joy, there is rejoicing. There's joy at the circumcision of John the Baptist. There is joy at the redemption of the firstborn Jesus in the temple. And the word goes out by those prophetically sensitive, insightful members who are of Israel who are waiting for God's outpouring. And people like Simeon and people like Anna recognize the fulfillment of God's promises as they are presented with them. So, when everything had been finished that was required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their home in Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. That is an echo of the refrain that we hear about the young Samuel growing up in the temple. He grew in favor and stature with God and men. And both John the Baptist and Jesus, like that dedicated child Samuel, both Je John the Baptist and Jesus grow in favor and stature with God and with men. Well, the information that we have about Jesus' childhood is pretty meager. <laughs> we wish that we had a lot more, but Luke does bless us with one more story. And this story is um, when Jesus is about 12 years old in Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 52, and it's a very wonderful story. In this story, Luke tells us that Joseph, Mary, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover as was their custom. Well, that tells us that these are law-abiding Jews. They celebrate the pilgrimage feasts. They follow the, the religious calendar of Israel. They are obedient to the law and to the spirit of the law. And of course, you're so familiar with this story. 
Joseph and Mary head back. The feast is over. They walk for a whole day, and at dinner time, Jesus isn't there. And of course, they figured he was with the kids all day, but they expect to have a hungry 12-year-old, but there's no sign of Jesus. Jesus is at an important age. You know, you have these milestones in life. The first milestone is birth and circumcision in a Jewish boy's life. And the second milestone is that transition from childhood to adolescence, which we celebrate today at the age of 13 with a bar mitzvah. But in this story, he's 12, so he's right on the cusp of adolescence. What would happen for a Jewish boy at that time? They would finish their formal education, their education in how to read. Professor Shmuel Safrai of Blessed Memory, who taught at the Hebrew University, did a wonderful study on education in the time of Jesus and said that boys would learn to read from about the age of 5 to 12. Now, Safrai believed that girls were also taught to read from about the age of 5 to 10 when they would go home and then help their mother with all the housework. Um, not all scholars have that maximalist view. Some scholars don't think that women got to read and that not all boys got to read, but Safrai was a scholar and his daughter was a scholar and his son was a scholar. So it was easy for him to envision, according to uh, the historical sources, that the women also, at least some of the women, were taught to read. But around the age of 12, a boy would stop his formal education, having learned to read the Torah, that was the textbook, that was the primer. The book that you learned to read from was scripture because the reason you learned to read is to be able to participate in the synagogue services. So you read the Torah and you read the prophets, but at 12, you probably have sufficient reading ability to participate in the service. And now you should really learn what is going to be your career path. Are you a farmer? Are you a shepherd? Are you a tinsmith? Are you a builder? Um, whatever might be, are you going to be a fisherman? You're gaining muscle, you're gaining height. Some people get their height when they're 13 years old. And are you going to go out there and now learn how to be a responsible co-worker with your father, your uncles, your family, or are you going to be apprentice? So this story takes place when Jesus is 12 for a very specific reason. Mary and Joseph get to that first night, one day's walk from Jerusalem, and Jesus is not there. Their hearts sink. It's nighttime. They can't walk back to Jerusalem to find him until daylight. It's not safe. They wait that long night. In the morning, they get up and they walk back to Jerusalem. That's a whole second day. It took them one day to get there. It takes them one day to get back. It's night. They can only look for him on the third day. And in some ways, the three days of Jesus lost in this little narrative when he's 12 years old anticipate the three days of the tomb. And on the third day, the finding and the revelation of Jesus. Where would you find Jesus in the old city of Jerusalem? The walled city with no street signs, no maps, no Google, no ways, no GPS, no plan of where you're going to meet. I mean, I always would tell my kids when they were little, if you get lost, stay there, I will come and find you. Don't you go looking for me because you never know where they would end up. So they go to the place where they were last together, I presume. They go to the temple, and there's Jesus. He's just happy as a lark, having this great discussion with all these teachers and rabbis, these experts on the law, and it's a mutual admiration society. They love this kid. 
they think that this young man has real potential. He asks such amazing questions. He has such amazing insights for a 12-year-old. And they are thinking, maybe we should sign this kid up for the academies. He could study with a rabbi. He could become a rabbi. That would be good. And Jesus, young Jesus, is having his own experience at this time when he went to the temple. He'd been to the temple before. It was their custom to come up on pilgrimage. But at the age of 12, as he ascended and saw the white marble, the gold caps, smelled the sacrifices, heard the Levites sing, something came alive in his heart. A sense of calling and a sense of identity. And he's getting a lot of positive reinforcement from the teachers of the law. So Mary comes into him with Joseph in tow, and she says, how could you do this to your father and me? You are so in trouble, you are grounded for life. No, she doesn't say that, but she does say, I love how Luke is so circumspect, he never pours out the whole thing that she's feeling. I know she thought that, <laughs> but he says to her, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been looking for you anxiously. We thought you were lying dead in a ditch, but no. She just says this. And then he, he answers her in that kind of way that young adolescents have when they talk to their mom sometime. Well, mom, don't you get it? Where did you think I would be? This is where I belong. Get with it, mom. What does he say? That's, that's our contemporary American take. He says, how is it that you sought me? Do you not know that I must? Now here's where our translations start to uh, differ. Some will say that I must be in my father's house. Others say that I must be about my father's business. I must do my father's affairs. In the Greek, it says, don't you understand what I understand? That I must be in thee of my father. There's no noun in the Greek. I must be in, quotes, the of my father. It's as though he's created a milieu, an atmosphere, a place of presence of God that is beyond simply temple, beyond affairs, beyond matter. It's as though Jesus at 12 walks into the temple and he knows that he has come home but it's not just the physical place, it's the presence of his father, that this is where his destiny lies and this is where he belongs. And he can't get it that his mother doesn't get it. I mean, she's the one who had the angel speak to her 12 years ago. How does she not get it? Where else would I be? So at the age of 12, the vocation starts to emerge. But of course, he's 12 years old. And not really mature and responsible and able to make those kinds of decisions about his future. So Mary, as she is with him, they said, and they did not understand the saying which he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. And his mother kept all these things in her heart. They say, darling, we get it that you're a really great kid, and I'm sure God has something special for you, but you're going to come home to Nazareth with us. We're entrusted with your care and with your raising, and we're going to raise you. For Jesus, for the young Jesus, this is a test of obedience. Will he 
kick against the pricks? Will he obey his human parents? Because his ability to obey his human parents is going to set the standard for his ability to obey God when the really tough stuff comes. When he's tempted by the devil in the wilderness, when he has to face that cross and he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, it is this reflex of obedience that will enable him to face the harder things in life. So he returns and he grows up in Nazareth and he increases in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. This story answers one other question for us in the Gospel of Luke. And that has to do with the, the um, question that is always thrown at Jesus by his opponents, by the Pharisees, by the scribes. By what authority do you do this? Where did, the man, where did this man get this learning? By what authority do you teach? Who was your rabbi? Where did you study? No academy, no seminary, no ordination. Luke is a very, in a very subtle way telling us the talent was always there. The teachers of the law recognized it when he was 12. He was already on the path. You don't have to worry that he's not from one school or another because God was becoming his teacher. He had the sense of calling and they recognized the great gifting in him even as a 12-year-old boy. So it's so interesting that Luke brings us to that point in his uh, introductory material before he joins Jesus to the ministry of John the Baptist. And so we're going to start picking up now with the rest of the narrative, but before we do that, I want to just take a moment to talk about the outline of this book because it'll set us free to run through the rest of Luke and to look at those particular episodes or pericope that are most interesting to us. We've already looked at the prologue. The first part is the prologue, Luke 1, 1 to 4, that introduction. We've looked at the infancy narrative, chapters 1 and 2, the birth and childhood of John the Baptist and Jesus, side by side. And now, part 3 will be the preparation for the public ministry of Jesus, his baptism by John the Baptist, and his uh, preparation and temptation in the wilderness. Part four will be his Galilean ministry, from chapter four, verse 14 to 950, where he gathers his disciples, where he trains them, where he shows that God is powerful and compassionate, where Jesus is mighty in word and in work, and where they come to the recognition that he's the Messiah. He will set out in part five on the travel journey. We've referred to this in a previous session, where beginning in chapter 9, verse 51, and going through chapter 19, verse 27, Jesus goes on an exodus journey, taking him from the Galilee to Jerusalem, teaching as he goes and prepares his disciples, reaches out to the crowds and confronts his opponents on his way to Jerusalem. The sixth part of this gospel is the ministry of Jesus in Jerusalem from chapter 1928 to 2138. Jesus enters the city as a king. He takes over the temple in the perspective of Luke, he goes to the temple every day. He owns the temple, the people. He owns the people. Nobody can lay a hand on him. So he comes and he ministers in Jerusalem. 
And then in section 7, the Passion Narrative, from chapter 21, verse 1, to 23, 56, we have the essential climax of Jesus' exodus as he begins to return to the Father. And finally, in part 8, we have the resurrection narrative from 2356 to 2443 as Jesus is exalted and glorified and as he commissions his disciples to witness to him and to wait for the promise of the Father. So I know that's a very quick run through. Much is shared in common with Mark and Matthew, but in particular that travel narrative, this exodus journey of Jesus, is something very special in the Gospel of Luke and we're going to look at that more fully. So in the remainder of this particular session though, we want to look at how Luke, who promises to give us a narrative that is in order, what are the special things that he does that create this order for him? So you turn to Gospel Parallels, section 1, which is on page 11 on, in your book. Gospel Parallels, section 1, page 11. And I only want to show one little thing that um, is unique to Luke and that helps us see the difference between Luke and Matthew and Mark. All three Gospels, as they describe John the Baptist, quote from Isaiah 40, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now that is the, that's the entire quotation in Matthew and Mark. But Luke, what, Luke takes that same passage from Isaiah 40 and look what he does with it. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be brought low, the crooked shall be made straight, the rough ways shall be made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Luke wants to include the longer quote from Isaiah chapter 40 because he knows that it ends with universal salvation. From Simeon to John the Baptist, the way is being prepared for that wonderful unfolding of God's purposes for the entire world. As Luke continues with, uh, with his preaching and narration about John the Baptist, we want to notice something else unique that becomes an important theme in Luke Acts. In Gospel Parallels, section 3. So if you turn your page and you go to section 3, on page 13, you see a little section as John speaks to his questioners. And the question that they ask is, what should we do to be saved? And he says, if you have two coats, share it with the person who has none. If you have food, share it likewise. The tax collectors say, what should we do? And he said, collect no more than is appointed you. And the soldiers say, what shall we do? He says, rob no one by violence or false accusation and be content with your wages. Now that is material unique to Luke. And it points out another theme that you can trace through his gospel about possessions and spirituality. Do your possessions own you or are you in charge of your possessions? This is a principle of spiritual health in the Gospel of Luke. 
If your possessions own you, you are not spiritually healthy. If your heart is in your possessions, you need a checkup. But if you can freely give because you freely received, if you can be sensitive to the needs of others, you are in good spiritual health. Luke feels that there is a real connection and a real balance between what we do with our material goods and how we experience the love and presence of Jesus in our life. So that's a very special and unique thing that we see beginning already in the preaching of John the Baptist and will be carried on through the preaching of Jesus through the Gospel of Luke and we're going to remember that. But another unusual thing that Luke introduces here is if you look at section 5. Section 5 is John's imprisonment. Now, Matthew and Mark also tell us about John's imprisonment. John the Baptist was arrested by Herod Antipas because John spoke truth to power. And he said, your relationship is immoral and you're not living as people who fear God because of this adulterous union that they had. So Herod Antipas, the Herod of the Galilee, the Herod before whom Jesus will stand on trial, imprisoned John the Baptist. But if you look at your book, you see that that story is told in Matthew, in Matthew 14, halfway through the book. And in Mark, in chapter 6, nearly halfway through the book. But some, for some reason, Luke has brought it forward in his gospel. Remember, this is when I was talking about how Luke likes a single actor on the stage at a time. So he brings the imprisonment of John the Baptist forward and tells us that Herod the ruler, who had been rebuked by John the Baptist because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the evil things that Herod had done, added to this the shutting up of John in prison. So it's a little bit funny. It's, it's before the time, but it's also before the baptism. Because Jesus hasn't actually been baptized yet. That does not happen until section 6. It happens in the Gospel of Luke after he tells us that John is put in prison. But of course, all the readers of the Gospel know that actually John is baptized by John the Baptist. We've seen that in the other Synoptic Gospels. We see it in the Gospel of John. It's, it's a historic fact. But this is part of the writing style of Luke. He likes to organize his material in a way that allows him to bring forward something that was actually going to happen later, but because he wants to shine on the light on Jesus alone. So when we look at section 6, the baptism of Jesus, and we look at Luke's account, we see that in chapter 3, verse 21, it says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, he puts it in the passive voice. He doesn't say, when John baptized Jesus. He just says when Jesus had been baptized because we're moving John off the stage. John will appear one more time in this gospel when he's in prison in chapter 7. And in prison in chapter 7, he sends to Jesus to ask, are you really the Messiah? We, uh, we have looked at that in our study of Matthew because it's an it's a incident that is shared by both Matthew and Luke. And it shows us that moment of questioning and second thoughts on the part of John the Baptist as he is waiting death and wonders why Jesus isn't doing what we expect a Messiah to do. A Messiah should go up. He should liberate Jerusalem. He should liberate his people. But he doesn't. And so 
Jesus answers by healing many people and by reminding John the Baptist that the job of the Messiah is not simply a political leader and in fact is not at all a political leader. It's to be the one who brings in the activity of the day of the Lord, healing the blind, healing the deaf, causing the lame to walk, raising the dead, preaching the good news to the oppressed. Those are the signs of the Messiah and people should not take offense that that is what Jesus is doing. That's his challenge and his encouragement to John the Baptist. You got it right, John. I am the Messiah. It's just that your definition of Messiah needs a little bit of an adjustment. So we have John showing up there. I said also that, um, that Luke is a gentleman. He doesn't like gore. And so we have the execution of John the Baptist that is recounted in both the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark. You remember that story, right? The birthday party of Antipas. He wants the birthday present of Salome dancing, Herodias' daughter doing this dance. And what is the price for that dance? The head of John the Baptist on a platter. Luke simply does not tell the story. He makes a declarative statement that John the Baptist was executed and he leaves it as that because he doesn't he doesn't thrive on gore and he doesn't thrive on unclean things and for him that story is an unclean story and it's not necessary to the greater narrative of Jesus and his followers. So those are the materials that he he preserves for us for John the Baptist and in moving the imprisonment forward we get a little sense that his order is not simply about chronology but it's about how the story is tell. In the next session, we're going to look at how he brings something forward that thematically links with the ministry of Jesus, anticipating his future destiny.